Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am Doug Stewart, your host, and I have a special guest with me, Ryan Ragazine, who is a seminary grad, an avid content creator, and the host of the Thinker Sensitive Podcast, a podcast about thinking better and thinking together about life's most important issues. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. I, I feel like we're going to have a great conversation. Our off-air conversation uh, started off really fun, and uh, I got to know you a little bit. And so why don't you let our listeners get to know you just a little bit? You can even sort of plug your podcast, although I will give you a chance to say a little bit more about that near the end. Sure, yeah. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. I lived there till I was about maybe in my early 20s. And then I went off to Bible College in Texas and that was a big, big culture shock for me. But had, you know, a pretty good experience on an educational level. I learned a lot. I became kind of obsessive, not always in a good way, about learning and knowledge. And so then I decided to go on to graduate school. So I went to seminary at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. And my goal for a really long time was to be a professor. So I wanted to graduate with my MA in theology and then go on to get a PhD and to teach in college. I wanted to teach philosophy and theology in college. But some different things happened in my life. And I also felt like God was kind of redirecting me in terms of my plans and my goals. And so I ended up not pursuing a PhD. And my wife and I moved to Colorado we started a house church that we ran for five years for really anyone, but it was geared more towards the unchurched and people who grew up outside the church. We did that for about five years, and then I decided to start pursuing podcasting, and I kind of viewed it as an alternative to teaching in college because that was always the thing that I was really passionate about, felt like God called me to be in education, in some sense, and the podcast is kind of an alternative avenue of teaching for me. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's a really interesting journey that you took there. Podcasting is, of course, something that I really love. And so it is also an, a way for me to get ideas out in front of people and, you know... You're actually creating original content, it seems, because I haven't yeah. yet in my listening to your podcast, I haven't heard a guest on there. I get to <laughs> cheat a little bit and just say, hey, you, come on and tell all my listeners all these important things. And uh, hopefully I guide the conversation well enough. So as you began thinking about doing your podcast and things, like, why did you think that Christians 
would need to have what you offered by way of thinking about thinking and thinking about doing thinking with your podcast? Yeah, that's a loaded question. I think on a cultural level, I think that we see maybe some poor thinking and some poor communication taking place kind of just in contemporary discourse in general. And so I think it's very important to think about thinking, as you said, to think about what it looks like to think in a sound manner, what it looks like to think even in an ethical manner or even a Christian manner, and then what it looks like to communicate in a sound manner and to communicate in an ethical manner. And I think that's so fundamental before we start thinking about, you know, all these important issues, political issues, religious issues, all the big questions in life, let's back up and learn how to think in a sound manner, to learn how to communicate in a sound manner. And now once we've kind of established that and thought about that and what that looks like, now I think we're in a position to think about the big questions of life and to talk about those things in a prudent manner. So I think that's just really important is building that foundation before I start to think about the big questions. And on a cultural level, I think it's, it's really important because with social media, we're seeing a lot of thinking and communication that I don't think is very sound, and that's a problem. Well, I was actually going to ask, like, was it something that you were seeing in the broader culture or was it mostly like your particular sort of oikos or, or small community of people that led you to believe that there is a deficit in critical thinking among Christians? Yeah, I don't know if I would say there's a deficit in terms of the church itself or Christians in particular. I think I see it more broadly in our culture and in our society. Mm -hmm. I think there definitely is unsound thinking and maybe poor communication that takes place in the church. I think that's definitely true. But I think you also see these things outside the church as well. And so I think these kinds of issues are important for both people outside the church and inside the church. And I think it can create an environment where religious people and non-religious people, where believers and non-believers can come together and can have fruitful and constructive conversations with one another. So I want to ask you this because I don't know if you've noticed on social media and things, whenever the the wrong, I'm going to use this sort of facetiously in scare quotes, whenever the wrong president is in office and there's certain policies going on, you see the opposing side posting things about this isn't, you know, 1984 wasn't supposed to be an owner's manual or they'll, and then it flip-flops, sure. right? And they say the yeah. same thing. It's like, oh, we're living in 1984 and it's the complete opposite sort of party. And it's like everybody thinks that their way of looking at the world, I'll use my example there, their view of 1984 is like going to come true. Sure. And it's like everybody's saying the same thing, right? So in some ways, let me tie that into what you were just saying. I think a lot of people look at the opposing side and say, well, you're just not thinking clearly or you're just... Because I would say the left would say this about the right and the right would say this about the left. Yes. And the question that I would want to know from you or just kind of get your take on this is like, well, how do you get to the point at which you can agree that each other are at least making sound arguments and thinking in what you're calling a sound and ethical manner? Because if you can't do that, then all we're doing is just restating our own opinions for the benefit of those on our already on our side of the aisle, even if we're shouting at the other side of the aisle. Yeah, for sure. I think that 
just natural human bias plays a large role in this. I think that all human beings are biased, and I think those biases cloud our judgments. And I think that's a large part of sound thinking and ethical thinking is trying to, well, first of all, being aware that I am biased and being able to criticize myself. And then once I recognize that I have biases, trying my best is as well as I can as a finite, fallible human being, trying my best to divorce myself from those biases and engage with information in a critical way, but also a self-critical way with humility and openness. And just, you know, trying to understand where other people are coming from and trying to have some empathy and not just trying to like win an argument or just to like get my point across. There has to be like real listening that takes place too. So for you, the outcome is to show somebody that you're listening to their genuine argument rather than just making sure they they hear your point as you know eloquent as it might be. Yeah, for sure. I think like in order to have a fruitful... Con- when we think about the idea of just a conversation or dialogue, you think about an interchange of ideas, like a true interchange of ideas. Right. So that takes, I think, a base humility. I think it takes a base openness. I think that... It takes like real, like critical listening (laughs) to what the other person has to say. And you're truly interchanging ideas. It's not, you know, as a Christian, I think a lot about some of the statements in the book of Proverbs that talks about the foolishness of being quick to speak and slow to listen or quick to teach and slow to learn. And I think we see this kind of attitude a lot in contemporary discourse. Instead of approaching a conversation, approaching the other with a base openness. And maybe, you know, people have some fears. Well, if I, if I approach a conversation with true openness, does that mean I have to sacrifice what I believe? Does that mean I have to mm. betray my convictions? And no, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that one can have a base openness and a base humility like I'm talking about and also have deeply held convictions and to stand for what you believe as well. I don't think those two things are are mutually exclusive. Yeah. I think for me sometimes, I'm pretty open-minded and I'm pretty willing to listen to an argument. Now, there are some things that I've sort of fleshed out in my mind over time or actually, you know, done the engaging critical thinking work and like, sure. okay, now I'm not going to entertain that anymore. So there is that yep. uh, level of engagement. But I think a lot of people, if they're anything like me in this way, they may fear that being... like They may not have cherished beliefs that they have to be like, oh, well, if I listen to this argument, I'll have to let go of that. But that the challenge itself of their held beliefs, whether it's cherished and tightly held or whether it's even somewhat loosely held, sometimes can create a shift in their thinking that is uncomfortable. Yeah. Because then it means, oh, well, if I have to rethink my thoughts on this, even if it's just, oh, my perception of the other side's argument was wrong, right? Yeah. Then they have to accept that perhaps maybe they're wrong about something else. And I think we have this, we don't want to question what we know and how we know it, right? Like, you know, we could take the most contentious issue right now, which is, you know, re-emerging the pro-life, pro-choice debate. And, you know, there's even like libertarians on the side of abolitionism versus, actually, I don't know what the other name of the sort of the opposing side there is. But like, 
you can listen to each other and have a fruitful conversation in some cases, but a lot of times it means you have to be open to being wrong about at least one particular point or at least something, right? And if you open that up, it, it creates a vulnerability internally. And so there's inner conflict. And I think that's a, a lot of why people are troubled to entertain. It's like, I don't have time to like rethink everything I knew about life. Why can't I just go on with my own paradigm here? Because it's not, you know, some of these things don't actually matter. I mean, the sure. life situation, of course, does. But like some of these things, like some of the things that we believe about, you know, the nature of the world aren't going to be, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. There are things that are less important than others. And so sure. those things people can let go. But anyway, that's, that's just, I was just responding. You can respond to that however you want. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's human nature to have that fear, that worry that you're talking about. And I think, you know, for the most part, I think it's human nature to fight against change as well. So I think the concerns that you're raising are real concerns, and I think they're valid. I talk a lot on the podcast about the unfruitfulness of dogmatism or the unfruitfulness of being like overly objective about what we believe in. Hmm. The reason is because I think we all know, like, have had experiences with like know-it-alls in our in our lives, and have tried to have conversations with people who think they know it all, and it's very difficult. I know it really me. ruins the conversation for those of us who do know it all. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but we know the unfruitfulness of that by experience, and maybe it's ourselves too. But when I approach a conversation with an attitude of "I know with a hundred percent certainty that I'm right." and you're wrong, that absolutely kills a conversation before it can even begin. Like, at that point, we're not even able to have a conversation, an interchange of ideas. Hmm. And so I, I really think that in order to have like a truly constructive conversation, there has to be a base openness. And that might mean, as you're saying, that I have to be willing to reconsider some ideas or possibly change my opinion but I also think that that's very healthy. I think that, you know, we're creatures in time. We're creatures who change. And all of us are in a process of change. And I think it's healthy that as we grow, if we're looking to be people of maturity, as we grow, there are going to be things that we change. And there are going to be opinions that, that we change over time. And that's, I think, healthy. So I understand the concern about that, absolutely. And as a human being who, you know, personally, I don't like change very much. So I understand the concern. But I think if we're looking to grow as people, then we have to be willing to make some changes here and there. Yeah, yeah, I know that that's a good response. I really like that. You use the word um, thinking in an ethical manner. And, and on your podcast, you talk about ethical thinking and ethical communication. Can you yeah. just give our listeners like, what, it, what do you mean by ethical thinking? And then you can also just continue by saying, you know, how, do, how is it that you teach this and demonstrate this in your podcast? Yeah, I mean, I hope I demonstrate it well. I hope I model it. I don't want to talk about these things from like a perfectionistic manner because no one's perfect and we all make mistakes. And I think certainly like in the context of conversations or discussions about important things, we're emotional beings. And so sometimes emotions get the best of us. You're going to get upset at times. You're going to say things that maybe you shouldn't say. I think that's part of being a human being. But the ideal that I try and teach is in terms of thinking, ethical thinking, to me, ethical thinking is first, it's 
thinking that's fair and just and charitable and equitable. So it doesn't take people's opinions out of context. It doesn't misconstrue ideas. It's fair. It's just. It's charitable. I think that's really important. And I think I see that sometimes lacking in our society that we're very quick to take something out of context or misrepresent someone. And that's un, that's unjust. It really is. It's unjust. And ethical thinking is also, it's free from bias and prejudice. I think it's free from partisanship as well, because I see partisanship as a form of bias. That's not always the case, but I think it's free from bias and prejudice. I think ethical thinking is impartial. It's free from favoritism. As a Christian, when I think about some of those verses in the Bible that talk about how God isn't a favor of persons, how he's impartial, I think that's such an important value. Hmm. I think ethical thinking is also mediating and nuanced. Now, I should make a qualifier here. It's not to say that like the middle ground is always like the way to go right? or that the truth is always found in the middle because that would actually be a form of extremism. But I do think that ethical thinking often looks to reconcile differences and looks to find some truth in the middle if possible. Mm -hmm. And so ethical thinking is nuanced in that manner as well. And then the last couple of things, I think ethical thinking is honest and it's self-critical. And I talk a lot about the value of self-criticism on the podcast. I think that our culture is very quick to point the finger at others, to cast judgments, to criticize others. And I think we're slow to criticize ourselves and to judge ourselves. And so I think self-awareness is really important. I think self-criticism is really important, that honest self-evaluation. And as a Christian, I think those values are really important. When Jesus talks about his judgment or his ethic of judgment, he talks about the idea of self-criticism, about the fact that people should judge themselves before they judge others. And if they don't, then one can easily fall into making hypocritical judgments. And so self-criticism is a means to avoiding hypocrisy in our judgments. And so I think that's really important and a really key component of ethical thinking. Okay, so I know you want to talk about ethical communication, but I do have some... I just want to ask you a couple questions here that you know sort of spawn my, my thoughts as you were talking about people being self-aware. There is a phenomenon, I think, that happens, and I notice that this happens because my wife tells me this happens from time to time when I'm interacting with my children that I don't understand how I'm coming off to them. Like if I'm being sarcastic and they're not getting it, or maybe my body language is such that they like know that I'm, they think I'm upset because I haven't, I'm not aware of it. Right. And so that can happen. Um, and I know it's not just me <laughs> because I've seen it happen to other people. And sure. it does seem that a lot of people are not self-aware. And I'm not saying that like, oh, I'm good at this. because I just admitted that I'm not sometimes. But when you have these conversations with people or when you see the general tenor of an argument that's being made by even a group of people like the left or the right or libertarians or whatever it might be, what is the role of a person looking sort of from the outside to sort of inform the person, do you realize how you're coming off right now? And I don't mean that as in like their demeanor per se, but that the argument sometimes ends up taking 
the form of it looks like you're advocating for government oppression or it looks like you're advocating for this. And don't you realize that your argument is it doesn't look like what you say it looks like. It really looks like to everyone else like this other thing. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, I wish I had a specific example, but I, I am often being told by a person, uh, a leftist, who tells me that libertarians don't realize that the philosophy or ideology that they put forward is enriching those at the top at the expense of those at the poor because of, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons, and sure. you're just doing their work for them. Like, you're just sort of defending something that's actually an injustice or whatever, and it's coming up with motivated reasoning and all that. Okay, that's that's something that he says. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a possibility in a way that libertarians don't realize that they're making this argument or that it, this you can apply this in any other way, right? Yeah. At what point is part of the argument saying to somebody like how you're presenting yourself is very self-unaware. And a lot of times people get defensive by that. So anyway, I don't know what you have thoughts on that or not. No, yeah. I mean, so that would be a form of criticism. And I guess just my view on it is if I do offer that criticism to somebody else, which there are times when I should, right? And there's times when that's prudent to do so. The big thing for me is am I first judging myself by that same standard to make sure that my judgment is just and avoids hypocrisy, to make sure that I'm being consistent? Like, we all have blinders. And because of that, there is definitely value in other people coming to me and saying, hey, Ryan, I think maybe you're being a little too mean-spirited here, or maybe you're missing this point. There's value in that kind of criticism for me to then become aware of the things that I'm missing. Hmm. But we also need to be aware that when we offer criticism, that we ourselves have areas that we fall in. We ourselves have areas where we fall short and just being aware of those things before I cast a judgment on somebody else, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. okay. So let's talk about ethical communication. Go ahead with uh, what that is and, and how you try to teach it. Yeah, I think for me, ethical communication is considerate. It's courteous. I think it's measured. And I would even say, and from a Christian perspective again, that it's both loving and gentle. I think we often remember that New Testament statement or precept about speaking truth in love right? Mm -hmm. I think we, yep. forget, we forget some of those precepts about speaking truth in gentleness or being gentle in speech. That is also a New Testament concept. Now, of course, you know, we're human beings and we're going to mess up. And so our speech isn't always going to be gentle. And of course, like not every single context demands that we use gentle speech because I think Ethically speaking, our ethics should be contextual. And so speech is also contextual. But that is a New Testament principle, to be gentle in speech, to be sensitive with the way that we communicate. So ethical communication for me, it isn't rude. It isn't condescending. It doesn't mock others or ridicule others. It isn't insulting. It isn't hateful. It doesn't villainize or demonize those who believe differently, right? And so ethical communication is considerate. It's loving. It's courteous. And this, I think, is a, is a big problem in our society. And I think particularly with social media, where a lot of our discourse, I think, is unethical 
instead of ethical. And so, you know, especially as Christians, I think this is something that we should be, that we should take to heart and really be intentional about communicating in in an ethical manner. Hmm. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. I would wonder if Jesus would qualify speaking in an ethical manner uh, under what you just said in some of the instances in the Gospels where he is pretty harsh, at least in the way it reads, toward folks like the Pharisees. Sure. How do we account for, and, and even even the Apostle Paul and some of the, uh, the Apostles' disciples in the book of Acts, it doesn't seem like, and again, I don't, it, this is sort of like, you know, I'm hearing what you're saying and it's like, oh, okay, I don't think what you're saying is there should never be heated discussion sure. or passionate statements being made and thrown over at someone else or whatever. But like, where is the place for confrontation would probably be the summary of what I just, you know, sort of brought up. Oh, yeah. I think there's there's always a place for confrontation, no doubt about it. Um, Whew, and good. <laughs> <laughs> it takes I mean, my whole style depends on it. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. <laughs> it takes wisdom and discernment, of course, to know when to confront and when not to, right? Like we have to pick and choose our battles, and that's really tough. I think it also takes discernment to know this is an interesting one to know if the person that I'm confronting is mature enough to handle the confrontation or not. Because there are times. The thing about criticism is that it always has the potential of also blowing up in your face or like causing like just a really bad episode or a bunch of drama. Yeah. And a lot of that depends on the maturity of the person receiving it. And that's true of ourselves as well, right? Like in order to maturely accept criticism, I have to have some humility and I have to be open to what the person is saying. And that's not easy, right? And so Uh there are times in life where maybe you need to confront someone, but maybe also you know from experience that that person doesn't have the maturity to receive your criticism well. And then you have to just figure out whether it's worth it or not to wage that criticism. 
Yeah, then the approach becomes a little bit different because you have to sort of prepare their hearts in a way sure. that you're about to say something that might be confrontational and it doesn't have to be forceful or any, anything. So it sort of changes the environment if that person is not in a reciprocal setting, yes. right? Where they feel like whatever you have to say, they'll be able to take and figure out what to do with it instead of you know just withering away or going away. Yeah, and you asked a very difficult and challenging question about like Jesus's speech. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, I mean, you could sum up some of the gospels as like a constant conflict between Jesus and the religious leadership of Jerusalem, right? And so, yes, there were definitely times where Jesus did not communicate in a gentle way. I think you could argue that he was still communicating in a loving way. But certainly you could argue that he wasn't communicating in a gentle way. And that's where I think that context is important. And certain contexts may demand that we raise our voices or maybe in a certain context we speak from a righteous anger because maybe the context demands it in some sense. I think, though, we also have to be careful with that because I don't think that some of those sequences where Jesus speaks in kind of a harsh manner, I don't think that's the rule. I think that's the the exception to the rule. And so I think we just have to be careful maybe about overgeneralizing some of those um, scenes Mm -hmm. from the Gospels, whereas those are more exceptions. And so maybe there's some wisdom in that in saying that, yes, some contexts maybe demand that we, we speak up or even use harsher language. Hmm. But those are more the exceptions to the rule than maybe the rule itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that makes sense. What are some of the topics in sort of society, public life, public politics that are sort of most important to you? I think the most important things to me right now would be issues of censorship. The issue of cancel culture is one that's important to me. Um, and various expressions of cancel culture. Echo chambers are a concern to me. Groupthink is a concern to me. And I guess you could say even like subtle subtle forms of indoctrination as well. Hmm. Talk to me about these subtle forms of indoctrination. I feel like there is a lot of that going on, but I think anybody who opposes the way I think would probably say that too. <laughs> sure. You know, or the people who are who are being indoctrinated that I think are being indoctrinated would probably say that about other people. And maybe it's yes. just all happening everywhere in our own ways due to echo chambers, groupthink, and so forth. But anyway, just what do you mean by subtle forms of indoctrination when you, when you think about it? Yeah, I, I guess I would... <laughs> qualify first with saying that I think we're all indoctrinated in some sense. So when I use the term indoctrination, I don't mean it in like a super negative way. Like I think everyone is indoctrinated, whether it's your childhood and upbringing, how you were raised, the friends you grew up with. In the social media age or the information age, of course, like your social media feed maybe the school you went to, uh, news outlets, media, music, movies, TV shows, just culture as a whole. I think we're all being indoctrinated in some way. And I think we've all been indoctrinated in some way. And so I don't mean this like in a hyper negative sense, but I do think that these forms of indoctrination, these subtle forms, or maybe even innocuous forms of indoctrination, curb 
free thinking and free thought and independent thinking. Mm. And of course, like echo chambers feed into that and group think feeds into that. And so I'm really passionate about people being able to truly like think for themselves and think freely and come to their own conclusions. And that's it's even one of the things that I preach about a lot on the podcast is it's like, when you listen to an episode, don't just take what I'm saying and just like blindly accept it, like fact check it. And really the way I like people to approach thinker sensitive and approach episodes is use it as kind of like a companion, like a thought companion. And as you think through an issue with me, then, you know, form your own conclusions and think for yourself. Mm -hmm. That's a big value for me. Talk to me about censorship and free speech. I mean, I think I know where you probably stand on it, given the value that you have on, you know, freedom of thought, freedom of speech. But like, what is your take on it? Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, free speech should be the general rule with very few exceptions. And I think our focus should be on the rule and not necessarily so much on the exceptions. And so... Of course, we can talk about exceptions to free speech, like the various legal exceptions to the First Amendment. So like things like fraud or a threat of imminent violence, incitement of lawless action, defamation, you know, those kinds of things. And even on ethical level, we could talk about an exception to free speech ethically would be like hate speech or true hate speech. But for me, our focus should be more on the rule rather than on the exceptions. And so I think that free speech should be widely applied, not widely limited, and without discrimination with regards to ideology or belief system. And I really think that protecting free speech is an ethical and moral issue. And I think it's one that we should all be concerned about because it affects all of us. Yeah, I'm actually kind of happy that that was like the first thing that you said. Now, I don't know if that's the first thing as in like it's primary uh, when I ask you what are important to you because when somebody asks me what is what are some of the most important issues of our time that's the first thing that comes to my mind yeah um, the second thing that comes to my mind is the growing threat of restriction of movement in that like there's a lot of and this isn't really part of our conversation no. but like the anti-immigration movements um, the uh, I can't think of the the word like the mental, Uh, how people regard others and whether or not those people, whatever those people might mean, it could mean the left, it could mean immigrants, it could mean, you know, whomever, can't be free in their sort of bodily autonomy as in like, here's where I'd like to live. Here's how I'd want to use my body to work in this location or to work for this person or work in this particular way. All those different sort of, you know, elements of what it means to be free in movement. I think is probably a secondary one. And I, and I know a lot of people are worried about quote-unquote invasion of other cultures or whatever that might mean. And so people are other worried about other things. Sure. And we can have that debate another day. But I was happy to hear that you said censorship and free speech because it really, really seems that we are at, I hope, as a friend of mine on Facebook said, uh, this might be the peak, uh, which means that we're going to come down the other side at some point. But I hope it's that. Um, But it could be like this societal tipping point where you see things like comedians being canceled for things. And it's like, "Mm." and these aren't like right-wing comedians, right? Sure. Like these are people who hold the values generally, typically, of those on the left. And 
when the left is still canceling those people for those things, it's like, mm, there's something going on here that's really, really troubling. And when you get to the bottom of it, it's very, it's not innocuous. This isn't a matter of, yeah. you know, simple things. So anyway, I'm just rambling on to you about why I agree with you. <laughs> no, yeah. What about in the church, though? Like, are, are there issues that you think are facing Christianity? And, you know, probably I would say let's limit this to like Western Christianity at this point, because that's what both of us are familiar with, unless you want to speak outside of that. But oh, yeah. what are some things that are facing Christians and Christianity, even whether it's outside of the faith of our church uh, or the church or even within it? Yeah, I think that there are a couple big conflicts within the church right now. I think there's a conflict, number one, between fundamentalism and progressive Christianity. And I think there's also a conflict with deconstruction today as well. And so those would be two things that I would bring up as issues that Christians need to work through today. Yeah, that deconstruction, that's kind of a buzzword nowadays. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, it's been a word that I've been familiar with for about two decades now, given my reading trajectory and, you know, everything else. And so it's coming around now as like entirely negative by some people that I know. And I'm like, hang on, like, it can't be that negative. Like you have to be, you have to open your mind a little bit, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, what are you seeing happening? And maybe we can continue talking a little bit about it. Yeah, I think there's a pretty large movement of deconstructing Christianity today. I think some of it is valid and even needed. Uh, like personally, I am more of a constructionist and a reconstructionist than a deconstructionist. But at the same time, I also, I think I would say probably through my teenage years, went through a process of deconstructing my beliefs and then kind of reconstructing those back up which is pretty similar to the process of Descartes, who, who deconstructed all of his beliefs and then went through this long, mm -hmm. kind of tedious process of building those back up again. I definitely think there is room to deconstruct various aspects of Christianity, particularly those aspects that reflect culture more than they reflect the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. And, you know, Christianity will always have this tendency of taking on the values of culture. And sometimes those values differ, maybe even greatly, with the way of Jesus himself. And so I think when that happens, and it's bound to happen in history, when that happens, there's always a place to deconstruct some of those distortions or perversions where Christianity takes on the nature and character of, of culture. I also think that there's room to demythologize and demystify certain interpretations of Scripture, especially passages that maybe the original author meant for those passages to be read more in an allegorical manner or a metaphorical manner rather than in kind of a hyper-literal modern manner. And so there's room for that as well. I think a lot of this is good and even necessary. With that said, I think that deconstruction also raises some big questions. And I think my main concern is where are we going or what are we replacing Christianity with? What are we reconstructing? So if you tear everything down, what are you left with? And 
Will you still have a foundation to stand on? Will you still have a foundation to build upon? Where are you going? You know, will your new structure or your new dwelling place, will it be less susceptible to criticism than your old one? Will it be immune to the type of deconstruction that you just dragged your former belief system through? And will you have the courage to criticize your new structure or your new dwelling place with the same vigor with which you criticized your old one? And so that comes back to the value of self-criticism as well. And so, Mm. you know, we always want to run to greener pastures. I think that's human nature. We also always tend to think that the grass is greener on the other side, but sometimes it isn't. And I think in the case of moving from Christianity to another worldview, whether religious or, or not religious, I personally don't think that the grass is greener. Of course, I'm coming from a position where I am a Christian. And so I have a bias here. I have my presuppositions. But I think we need to be careful about deconstructing everything and then being left with essentially nothing, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think there's an additional component there is like, what is the motive for deconstructing something? And everybody's going to have that a little differently. Sure. Um, For some, it might be that they were in an abusive situation that was justified through theology. And you know, we don't need to talk about whether or not that's actually connected or if it's just bad people yeah. who happen to hold... I mean, it's possible that people held sound theology but did bad things, right? There's that. Yes. Because that's that's true. But it also could be that there are theologies that have been constructed, which we also have to admit that our theological apparatus is a construction yes. of some sort. I mean, that's why we have denominations. That's why we have churches and that's why we have the that's not why that's how theology is mm-hmm. right so when we when we evaluate a theology based on for instance the possibility and i'll just leave it at that that that, that it has caused abuse right yep. um then that's something worth deconstructing and figuring out like what is the true value of the core truth in this so like for instance you mentioned you know like an allegorical thing Uh, or the allegorical versus strictly literal. And it's like, okay, so are we losing the true meaning of this, say, passage if it weren't literally, or if it weren't historically true? Can it still be true and carry the weight of God communicating to human beings what God wants human beings to know? And if the answer is still yes, you've not deconstructed into a pile of rubble. You've, You've reconstructed at least somewhat successfully to a large extent. And the other thing that I would, think here is like someone's motive could also be not just something like abuse, but it could also be that there's an inconsistency in something. Okay. So for instance, I know a lot of people will change their eschatology. That's probably a common thing that kids in college might change. They might change their eschatology. Well, as soon as you change your eschatology, that's going to affect your soteriology at some point. Because it's like, well, what does Christ's death actually do if you go from this eschatology to that eschatology. And there's some elements that kind of come together. And so there's this like, oh, well, I'm just trying to be internally consistent. Yes. Other people, and and that's a little different from deconstruction per se. That's just like shifting your beliefs. But you have to, I think of when you say the word deconstruction, when you were saying the word deconstruction, I think of this like building. Imagine you're outside in a city and you're seeing this building being constructed. Well, let's say the building's already construction and they're carefully taking it down and because they're going to evaluate the integrity of the structure, right? That's how I felt like deconstruction worked for me as I was becoming an adult and sort of challenging my faith beliefs as a kid, teenager or whatever. 
I felt like that's what I was doing. I never felt like I was tossing certain things out. Now, maybe a few things that were not structural. Um, but yeah. you know, the foundation, as you said, the foundation is probably the key thing there. It's like, well, if your foundation is on Christ, then what you reconstruct needs to be firmly connected to Christ. I don't want to say that it should be whatever you reconstruct. That's not what I'm trying to communicate, just no, for yeah. the record. <laughs> no, yeah. That, that could have been misinterpreted in a number of ways. I just want to make that clear. I don't mean it doesn't matter no. what you can reconstruct. That's a great point. And that relates, I think, to this conflict between fundamentalism on one hand and progressive Christianity on the other is really understanding what Christianity is. And as you put, it's really about building your foundation upon Christ. And so for Christians, Christ is the object of faith. So Christians are those who recognize that the words and deeds of Jesus are authoritative for faith and for, for practice. And another way of saying that maybe is that Christ is the criterion of truth for Christians. But I think the problem is that most people, when they approach this person of Jesus, they have a tendency to make Jesus into their own image. And, you know, all of us naturally view Jesus through a subjective lens, through a biased lens, like we've talked about. But the problem is when Jesus becomes more of a self-projection than the real Jesus of history, if we can use that language. When Jesus becomes a self-projection or even a product of wish fulfillment. And I think, when I think about fundamentalism on one hand and, I, and progressive Christianity on the other, in fundamentalism, Jesus might become the right-wing Jesus or the gun-loving Jesus or the American Jesus or even the white Jesus. In progressive Christianity, Jesus may become the liberal Jesus or the agreeable and all-accepting Jesus or the hippie Jesus or the woke Jesus. And for me, I think Christianity becomes more and more inauthentic the further away it moves from its source material, the further away it moves from its Christ. And as Christianity moves away from its source material, it turns into to what I call cultural Christianity a Christianity that reflects the values of culture more than the values of Jesus Christ. But the thing is that Christianity is not a cultural thing as much as it is a Christ thing. And I think that when we look at Christ, he was really someone who transcended all labels and categories. I don't think he was a conservative, and I don't think he was a liberal. I don't think he was a fundamentalist, and I also don't think he was a progressive. For me, Jesus was wholly other. He was special. He was unique. He transcended all these categories and all these barriers. And so both of these classifications and these approaches to Jesus, whether fundamentalism on one hand or progressive Christianity on the other, I think they both miss the mark. I think the real Jesus, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, lies somewhere in between those two poles. And that would be kind of my emphasis there, I guess. So as we wrap up this conversation, I think it would be kind of fitting practically to talk about how do we notice in ourselves when we might be becoming a cultural Christian 
my mind is coming back to you might be a redneck if like you might be a cultural Christian if what what are some things that we should look for in ourselves that that you might have oh, man. for us to hear? I think the idea of allegiance is really important. We all have biases, as we talked about. Within that, we all have allegiances and loyalties in life. And I think I always have to, you know, in criticizing myself and evaluating myself, I have to ask the question, is my ultimate allegiance, is my primary allegiance in Christ or is it in something else? So when we think about politics, right, like, am I more loyal to my political party or am I more loyal to the person of Jesus Christ? Hmm. Outside of the political realm, is my... But who's going to say they're more, like, how is it that we can even evaluate that? You know what I mean? Like, who's going to admit that? That, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think part of it is that our biases are going to distort the way we answer that question as well, because we're probably not aware of the things that we give loyalty to over Jesus whether that's our country or that's our political party or family members, you know, but the, the radical thing about Jesus' message is that he calls people to give ultimate allegiance to him over everything else. And I, the passage that comes to mind the most intensely in thinking about it would be when Jesus says that if anyone doesn't hate your father or mother or brother or sister, essentially you can't follow me or you can't be my disciple. Now that's, um, hyperbole, and Jesus is is purposely using language that is exaggerating. But the point is that your ultimate allegiance needs to be in me, not in anything else in life. I need to be above all those things, your ultimate loyalty. And I think that as historical beings, as beings who are in a culture and in a society, it's very easy to place other things or other authorities over the authority of Jesus. And I think this happens a lot when Christianity gets tied too closely to politics, in my opinion, but it happens in other areas as well. And of course, the Bible talks about this kind of thing using the language of idolatry, right? Like we have idols that we place above Jesus. And a lot of that might be like certain values or priorities beliefs, ideologies that we place above Jesus without really realizing it. And that's where, you know, that real honest and critical evaluation comes into play and really evaluating that. But you're right, it's it's hard to recognize. And if it's true, it's not an easy thing to accept either. Yeah, that's true. I, I think that allegiance thing is re- really what ties in, you know, what you said about idolatry. That's why the word allegiance is really important as a concept. And as a personal orientation, I suppose, would be the best word there. Where can our listeners find your podcast? I'm sure it's on all the podcatchers or whatever, but I know you have a website. What is the title of your podcast? What are some things that they can expect to find as they look up some more recent episodes? Yeah, so the podcast is called Thinker Sensitive. I'm blessed to have a website that's just thinkersensitive.com. So all the episodes are on there. We are on every podcast app and all the different um, social media networks. And what you can expect is, you know, a lot of talk again about ethical thinking and ethical communication, and then trying to apply those principles to the big questions of life. So I actually just did a mini series on cancel culture and 
public education. And so I talked about the idea of ethical teaching. What does ethical teaching look like? What does it not look like in terms of how we present ideas in a fair manner, in a just manner that gives our students the freedom to make decisions for themselves? I'm going to have a big season coming up on the question of God, where I'm going to talk about why I personally believe that God exists. And so, yeah, so you're going to find a lot of stuff about thinking and communication and then applying that to the most important issues, I think, in life. Awesome. Well, Ryan, I appreciate you coming on to talk to uh, us and our audience about these important issues. Um, I feel like we're kindred spirits in a, in a number of ways, um, possibly more than we know. And I, I hope we can have more conversations in the future. So everybody check out Thinker Sensitive and uh, hope this builds your audience a little bit, Ryan, because uh, you, you're saying a lot of good things. And oh, I, I do want to ask you, like, what is the typical length of your episodes? I think that's important. I think a lot of people would like to know that. Yeah, so for weekly episodes, it's usually somewhere between 15 and 25 minutes. So they're actually on the shorter end. But then when I do seasonal content, usually the episodes are a little longer. Ah, excellent. So there's a mix there. And I think that's really helpful to know as well. All right, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 